Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. If I haven't met you before, if you don't know who I am, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here. And uh, what we do as a church every week is we, we dive into the Word of God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a book by James. Now, we're going to look at this book this morning for us to give an indication and experience of what God has for us as His people and what God has to teach us as His creation. And so uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to chapter 1 of the book of James, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 27 this morning. Now, just as a little recap, uh, who remembers who James was in relationship to Jesus? Who is James? Yeah, he's his brother, right? He's his half-brother. And James is a very fascinating individual because when James was in relationship with Jesus, uh, Jesus was obviously getting into a lot of trouble by what he was teaching. Jesus was saying, uh, I am God, which got Jesus into a lot of trouble and led him to the crucifixion. And all along, James was sort of doubting, wasn't he? He's saying, Jesus, I don't want you to be taken to your death. I don't want you to be crucified for what you're teaching. So his family goes to grab Jesus, and um, they ultimately couldn't stop from what Jesus was doing in his ministry. But after the resurrection, after Easter, what do we see of James? Totally transformed from someone who was cautious and tried to protect his brother to someone after the resurrections, James' life was completely transformed to the point where he was part of leading and planting and networking a bunch of churches that exploded like crazy. And so James is a very fascinating person of history to, to discover about what resurrection does in someone's life and what the reality of Jesus' resurrection will produce in the life of someone. Now, as we've been studying James, the, the biggest thing we've been looking at is how does James speak to us in terms of, of wisdom? That's what James is all about. It's a wisdom literature. And so who remembers, what are some aspects of wisdom literature in the Old Testament? Things like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, right, Song of Psalms. James is sort of this New Testament example of wisdom literature, what wisdom literature is all about. And so a lot of what he talks about is this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. This is what it looks like to be committed to the life of Jesus. And so let's process together. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at James and his instruction to not just be hearers of the word, is what he's going to say this morning, but also be doers of the word. So we not just need to listen to the word of God, we need to live out the word of God. And so let's, let's read this together. James 1, verses 19 to 27. James says this. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, which is another way of talking to the church. Let every person be quick to what? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to what? Slow to speak and slow to what? Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. 
but be doers of the word, and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you. We come before you in gratefulness and gratitude that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us, that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us also through your word. And so we pray that as we study these words this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would instruct us, that you would convict us, and that you would transform our hearts and our minds so that we would know even more what it looks like to be followers of Jesus and to find the life of freedom and joy that he has to offer. And so bless us this morning as we become hearers of your word. Let us also be doers of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's process together. Well, who here is excited for gardening season? Anyone? John's already brought it. We had a fresh rain this morning, so that was pretty beautiful to see. Around our house, we're pretty excited. We built a new garden box, and we got everything ready. We're starting to plant seeds inside, and we're teaching Alethea how to plant seeds. And so we've been taking these egg cartons and putting little seeds in them, and Alethea gets to put the soil in and spray them with water. And, of course, that turns into spraying mom and dad pretty quick, too. But it's been a really fun time of teaching those some of things to her. And, and it, I find such a beauty in this season, isn't there? Because there's this beauty of renewal, there's this beauty of growth, there's this beauty of planting something in the dirt and seeing fruition come out of it. Seeing greenery, seeing things that produce what we can eat, producing things of beauty, there's this beautiful aspect of what this season brings. And what's fascinating to me is that what James does here in this passage is he says this very season of spring where we see all this growth and vegetation and fruition, he says this is exactly what God desires to see in his people. And he equates and he gives this imagery of God as a gardener and it says that God wants his word. There's this image of God wants his word to be implanted into us. Isn't that interesting imagery? God wants his word. In other words, the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, the, the truth of who Jesus is, he wants those things to be implanted into our hearts and minds. And, and James says this is the goal of, of gardening of God is he wants these things to be implanted in our hearts. And then he says, once that word is implanted, what is it going to produce? 
it's going to produce fruit. It's going to produce growth. And so everything we've been talking about this far in our study of James is the question of how do we actually grow in our faith? How do we actually grow in maturity? How do we actually grow in following Jesus? And and James is going to give us some instructions this morning of what it looks like to grow in our faith in Jesus, what it looks like to have the Word implanted in our hearts. Now, a question that Aletheia addressed right away in this planting process is as soon as we put the seeds in the soil, she would check back every day and she'd say, what is going on, Dad? What is not happening? She's saying, why isn't there any plants growing? And I had to answer. I said, well, it's a process. It takes time. It's, it's a journey. You have to be patient through it. But we, we trust and we know that once that seed is planted, that it will produce. And I think Alethea's question, my daughter, of, of why don't we see growth, why don't we see fruit, is something we could also ask of our own lives. Is if there's no seed in the soil, are you going to expect anything? But if there is seed in the soil, should you expect something? 100%. And what James is going to tell us this morning is if you're actually planting the Word of God in your life, then you better see some evidence in your life. You better see some evidence of a seed being planted. And so when we ask this question in our own lives, we need to process, okay, is this actually evident in my life and what are some signs that it's not so? And James is going to begin to give us instruction. These are some wisdom indications. These are some very practical life indications of how do we know if we're receiving the implanted word. And these are what James begins to bring up. I'm just going to walk through this text and give us an indication of what is James speaking to us. Well, the first thing he says is if you want to know if the Word of God is implanted in your life, you're going to be a person that is this. You're going to be quick to hear, quick to listen, quick to hear. We listen to learn. Now, now here's here's the weird thing. This is language we don't use, is it? What does it mean to be quick to listen? I mean, does that mean you shove your ears forward fast at someone? I don't even know. but, But what James is bringing out is a whole other different concept. This concept of hearer that James is using is someone who is a passive listener. Someone who can sit back and listen, but not actually be accountable for what they're hearing or what they're learning. And the best modern equivalent, perhaps, of this is someone who sort of audits a class. Has anyone ever audited a class before? A few of you, right? What happens when you audit a class? It means that you get to go to all the lectures... And you get to hear all the teaching, but you don't have to do any of the assignments or any of the tests, right? Sounds amazing, doesn't it? (laughs) That's what auditing is. So you can be a passive learner because you're not held accountable for anything you're learning. And I've audited one class in my life. I audited a class in Greek. And it was Koine Greek, New Testament Greek. For those of you who don't know, the New Testament's written in the language of Koine Greek, and so we study it to study into original manuscripts. But I was taking this class in Greek, and I audited it because I already did it in my undergrad, and so I was just taking some advanced classes that I wanted to prepare for. 
And it was a modular class, which means it was a week-long intensive. So all day, every day, all you're studying is Greek. Every day you get a test. There's a final exam at the end of the week that you have to pass or you fail the test. And I walk into this class auditing, and everyone is stressed out of their minds. Everyone is spending the entire day not only in class but all night studying so that they can pass the, every, the quiz every day, whereas I stroll in and I don't care. I'm nice and relaxed. I just sort of sit back in the lectures. I didn't even take notes that week. I sort of just enjoyed it. Why? Because I wasn't going to get tested. I wasn't going to get quizzed. It wasn't a pass or fail for me. And what I experienced firsthand is education is not the same when you're not held accountable for what you learn, is it? (laughs) Education is not the same when you're not held accountable for what you learn. And so it's fascinating to me. I went through that whole week. Everyone in the class is stressed out of their minds. I took sort of the quizzes just for fun. I came to the end of the week, and I ended up going to class for the final exam And when I got there, I went to my my teacher and I said, I don't feel like writing the exam today. And he's like, well, you're auditing, doesn't matter. So I just said, you know what, I appreciate this class, I love this class. And even if I didn't love it, I would tell him because he was this Ukrainian bodybuilder, so I'd be scared to tell him if I didn't like his class. But he's like, okay, it's fine, Micah, you did really great this week, thanks for coming, I appreciate your class. But guess what happened? Process this. Who do you think grew the most in their knowledge and understanding of Greek that week? Was it me or my classmates? It was my classmates. I had a lot of perceived knowledge already, but my classmates grew way more than me. Because they were being quizzed, they were being tested every day, they were being forced to study, they were being held accountable for everything they believed, whereas I came in and I was just able to be a passive listener. And this is what James is bringing out. He's saying, if you want to grow in your faith and knowledge of who God is, you can't be a passive listener. You have to be accountable for what you believe. You have to be accountable for what's being taught to you. And so when James says we're called to be quick to listen, what he's saying is we have to be active in our listening, understanding that we are being held accountable for what we learn. Now, that's a pretty important realization. It's pretty important for us, especially as we we talk about being followers of Jesus, Because ultimately, who are we accountable to? Who are we accountable to as followers of Jesus? We're accountable to God and we're accountable to each other, right? And and what that means is if God is teaching us something and God is revealing something to us and God is instructing us and and we simply passively listen and don't do anything he says, James is going to give us a big warning. He says, you know what? That's going to destroy your maturity. That's going to destroy your growth, but you need to be accountable to God and you need to be accountable to each other as the church. There's an accountability that's going on here for what we learn. And so that's James' first point. He says, we need to listen to learn. That's how we receive the implanted word. Uh, The next thing he says is this, quick to hear, slow to, slow to, speak. Isn't that, 
that is probably the most countercultural statement in our society today, isn't it? People who are slow to speak. In our culture, especially in this world of social media, everyone needs to make their opinion known about everything, don't they? That is our culture. If something happened, if something went on, then I need to make my opinion known about that. And that is the culture we live in, whereas James says no wisdom following Jesus it isn't just about how much opinion you can throw out there. It's actually processing, learning, analyzing, and then cautiously saying your perspectives and understandings. Why? Uh, uh, there's, again, James is very much like the proverbial wisdom literature, and there's, there's a proverb that says uh, you, can be, um, you, you can basically express what you believe and show that you're a fool, or you can be quiet and be supposedly still as wise, right? And, and it's this understanding that it's so easy for us to spout our mouth out and all we show is our ignorance. All, all we show is how much of a fool we are, where James says, no, to be wisdom, to be wise, you need to process what you're going through. You need to think, you need to analyze in your conversation with God before you just start spouting things off. And so slow to speak is another way that we receive the Word. We don't just output everything. We input the Word of God into our life. And then he says this, we're also called to be slow to anger. Slow to anger, which means that for us to process the Word of God, we need to question our anger. Now, just think of times that you've been angry. Who here listens well when they're angry? No, usually fights escalate, especially in relationships or in couples or in families. Fights escalate because no one's listening to each other. And you just get more and more angry and you feed off each other's anger, right? No one listens well when they're angry. No, no one processes well when they're angry. Uh, no one does much learning when they're angry. Uh, this is all counterintuitive of what it means to receive the Word of God with meekness, as James says. And he says something crucial here. He, he defines what it means to be slow to anger and why we be slow to anger. He says... He says this, he says, the anger of man, in other words, the anger of humanity, the anger that humans produce, does not accomplish the righteousness of God. What does this mean? It means that there's, there's a massive category difference. There's a massive differentiation between the righteous anger of God and human anger that we produce. See, see, God has this righteous anger. When we talk about the righteousness of God, we're talking about God being perfectly right in all his ways. And so there's righteous anger where God gets angry at things like injustice, things like racism, things like slavery, um, all these practices and all these things that are against the character and essence of the goodness of God. There's a righteous anger that comes from that. But we as humans, we have this human anger, which isn't focused on the righteousness of God or the glory of God. It's often focused just on us. Now, now think of this. Think of the last five times that you got angry in life. You could probably even ask this, what was the last time I got angry? Did what you get angry about have anything to do with the glory of God? 
Or was it all about you? <laughs> our anger is always about us. Uh, our anger is, is always encapsulated from a sinful perspective about what we can gain out of this world or what we're trying to control in this world. Where James says all our human anger does is accomplish nothing good. And, and the scriptures actually speak a, a great amount on this. The scriptures speak a great amount of what anger produces. So if you're questioning your life, if you have those moments where you get angry, I mean, who here, first of all, confession time, who gets angry? Right? All hands up at this point. If we have times in our life where we get angry, an amazing way just to ask the question, well, is this a righteous anger of being angry against things like injustice or things of evil of this world, or is it a human anger? The, the Bible gives clarification of what does the anger produce. And it says this, First, or 2 Corinthians and Galatians give some qualifying statements just to ask us what our anger produces. It says, this is what sinful anger produces. It produces quarreling. It means if you're fighting with someone when you're anger, it's probably human anger. It produces jealousy. It produces hostility. It produces slander. It produces gossip. It produces conceit, disorder. It produces enmity, strife. It uh, produces fits of anger, which is basically like temper tantrums, which adults have too, just so you know. It produces rivalries. It produces dissensions. It produces divisions. This is what our human anger produces. And James says, if you want to be a person who has the Word of God implanted in you, then anger is probably the first and foremost sign that you are neglecting the Word of God. Proverbs 29, 20 says this. It says, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, don't be quick to anger, for anger lies in the bosom of who? Of fools. The Bible takes anger extremely seriously. And I came across a, a beautiful quote this week reflecting on this. And uh, it's a quote by a guy named N.T. Wright. He's probably one of the, the top biblical scholars, New Testament scholars today, prominent historian. And he writes this. He writes, James hints at a similar concession when he says we should be slow to anger as we are slow to speak. But the point is this. If what we want is God's justice, coming to sort things out, in other words, if we want things to be made right, usually that's what our anger is all about. Our circumstances, our situations have been affected and so we get angry but this is the point, if we want God's justice to actually make things better, we will do better to get entirely out of the way and let God do His own work rather than supposing our bursts of anger, which will most likely have all sorts of nasty bits to it, he's British, that's why he uses that language, such as wounded pride, malice, and envy. That's what our human anger produces. He says, if we think our anger will somehow produce the justice of God, will somehow help do God or help God do what needs to be done, he says, we have completely lost sight of God's justice and what God's able to produce. 
And so here's the thought that James comes, that James brings to us. If we truly want the kingdom of God to advance, if we want love and mercy and grace and righteousness and goodness all to advance in this world, if that's the mission that we have been sent on as the people of God, as the church, and we think somehow anger will accomplish that, James says, you know what, you've got it completely wrong. You've got it completely wrong. He says, it's better for you to go sit in the corner over there and close your mouth than to be angry or spout anger at someone. It simply shows the Word of God has not embedded in your heart. This is what James says. Let's keep going. What is the fourth thing that James brings out? He he says, if we want to have the Word implanted in our heart, verse 22 He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. He's saying it's not enough just to to listen to the words of Scripture. It's not enough just for you to have information processed through your mind. He says it has to be transformed into the way you actually live. It actually has to be transformed into the way you live your life. And he says this, this is another aspect of deceiving yourself if you think you can just listen and have theoretical or intellectual knowledge about God, but not actually have it transform who you are. He says you're deceiving yourself. And this is the imagery that he uses. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And, and so he, he brings up this concept. What is the purpose of a mirror? Why do you look into a mirror? Yeah, to make sure you look presentable. <laughs> George this morning said to remind myself how good I look. And I said, that's only for you, George. Not all of us can say that, right? <laughs> But it's, it's we look so we can get a perception of what we look like and who we are. And James says, when a person looks into a mirror with the purpose of seeing their reflection and what they look like, and then they walk away from the mirror and they absolutely forget everything about what they look like, he says they deceive themselves. And what he's pointing out is it says it's the same with the Word of God. If you forget what you look like, then the whole purpose of looking in the mirror now becomes meaningless. And if you come to Scripture and you come to the Word of God, and the Word of God is very much like a mirror to us. It it teaches us about ourselves. It, It reveals sin in our lives. It reveals how God sees us. It reveals our identity. It reveals the goodness of God. It reveals the character of God. It reveals how we fall short of those things and we desperately need Jesus to redeem and restore those things. If we get all that information and we look through the mirror of the Word in that sense and then we walk away and we live and we function like this never happened, then James says, this all becomes meaningless and purposeless. It's lost its entire purpose for which you came to. 
And so James says you can't just be hearers of the Word. You can't just come to the Word of God and ask for Him to teach you and instruct you and not have it come into fruition in your life. It, it, it has to be connected there. There has to be a connection there. there. There has to be some flow of what you learn and what you live. Without it, James says, we're deceiving ourselves. And, and tragically, this, this is how so many people in, in the broad sense of the word church live. Where, where it's so easy for us to function as Christians with this theoretical intellectual, philosophical knowledge of who God is and who we are, and yet we don't actually allow it to transform any aspect of our lives. We don't allow it to change us. We don't live under its conviction. We don't allow it to produce what it's supposed to produce. And so what does that result in the church? It results in a bunch of people who think they're followers of Jesus, who think they're empowered by the Spirit, and yet don't amplify Christ's likeness or amplify the fruits of the Spirit. And James says, there can't be that disconnection. You're deceiving yourself if you think there can be a disconnection. And so James gives this, this warning then, this warning, that if we, we have a knowledge of who God is and who we are in God, but don't live out that implication, it becomes meaningless. And, and think of this from our human relationship perspective. Um, my, my daughter, Alethea, uh, growing up, her favorite color is pink now. She confirmed it in this morning service at 9. But growing up, her favorite color was orange. And we don't know why her favorite color was orange. My best guess is we took her to a BC Lions game when she was a baby, and maybe those colors stuck for her. True Lions fan, maybe, but I don't know. But her, color, her favorite color was orange all growing up. Now, for me to have that knowledge as a dad, if I were to never buy my daughter anything orange, that knowledge becomes meaningless, doesn't it? There's no purpose behind that knowledge. Because if I don't transfer that knowledge of, oh, my daughter's favorite color is orange, I need to live out the implication by buying something orange for her, something beautiful so that she can enjoy it, then that knowledge means nothing. There's a disconnect. And James says in the same way in our relationship with God, if God is telling us this, if God is revealing this to us, if God is instructing this to us, and we do nothing about it, it becomes meaningless. There's no purpose behind it. And so James says this in verse 25, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And James makes this contrast of someone who looks in the mirror and forgets as opposed to someone who has this look of curiosity. The connotation by verse, behind verse 25 and looking at the perfect law is this curiosity it's this searching, it's this diligence, it's this exploration, it's this wondering, it's this processing, it's all this pursuit of who God is and what He has called me to be and how I am seen in His image. It's, it's questions of why do I exist, what is meaning in life, where do I find purpose in life, um, all these existential questions that we have to wrestle with as humans. If we have a curiosity in those things, 
And if we allow God to answer them through the gospel, it says that we will experience freedom and we will experience blessing. So many people don't experience freedom in their life because they haven't approached God with a curiosity for Him to actually speak into their lives and transform them. But it's when we listen and live, that's what accomplish. And Jesus says this exact same thing. James is literally just repeating what Jesus has already taught His disciples. Jesus is teaching His disciples, He says, if you are truly my disciples, you will continue in my word. Isn't that interesting? That's been James' main theme here. If you are truly my disciples, you will continue in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen? There's freedom in Christ. There's freedom. There's this freedom that comes from knowing our sins are forgiven. There's freedom from knowing we don't have to bear burdens of guilt and shame. There's a a freedom knowing that we can actually relate to our Creator and that our relationship has been restored with our God. There's this freedom that comes from knowing that sin doesn't have authority in my life, but I can live someone who is pure and holy and enjoy all the blessings of that. And there's this freedom that comes. This is what James is pushing. This is what Jesus is pushing, the truth will set you free. When you experience Jesus, when you know Jesus, it transforms your life, and it brings blessing and freedom into your life. That's what James is saying the Word of God does. Here's the last thing that James brings up. This is how he he closes, verse 26 and 27. He clarifies something. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, what does it mean to bridle your tongue? It means to be slow to speak. It means not to show anger. It not, means not to be antagonistic against people, right? Don't bri- and does not bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart. And he, he gets pretty bold here. He, he says something pretty dramatic. He says, This person's religion is what? Worthless. Why? Because they know things of God, and yet they still act to the way they want to act, in anger, in animosity, in hatred. They know God is God of goodness and of love, but they act completely different. So he says this person's religion is worthless. Then he goes on to clarify something. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. He says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Who were orphans and widows in that culture? They were the most vulnerable demographic in the culture. They were the ones who lost of a husband, they lost income, they lost houses, they, they lost security, they lost stability, they lost comfort, they, they lost everything in that culture. So he says, visiting orphans and widows in their fiction. In other words, taking care of the most vulnerable people of society. And then he says, to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
And when he's talking about world, he's talking about the evil corruptions, realities of this world. There's seven meanings in the Greek language for world, and this is the one that attributes to the evil injustices of this world. And so what is James saying? He's saying true religion, what it actually means to follow Jesus, what it actually means to be a Christian, it is implanting the word to the point where it transforms the way you treat others. It transforms who you are in your character and it transforms how you treat others. And so he says, if you want to be someone who's implanted the word, the fruits that are going to come out of that is you're going to be a person of holiness. In other words, your character is going to change. The, the way you function, your integrity is going to change. That your, your aspect of your language and how you treat others is going to change. Everything about you is going to change in becoming more like Jesus. And the fruits of that is going to be shown in how you treat others. How generous you are in your love, how generous you are in your money, how, how generous you are in sharing the gospel, how, how generous you are in taking care of the vulnerable of culture and society, how, how generous you are to the people most in need and how generous you are just in your own life. James says, this, this is what the calling of Jesus is all about. This is what my brother Jesus is all about. And if you miss this, you're missing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, this, this last point is fascinating to me, uh, especially in light of this past year and a half. Uh, so much of the conversation in, in the North American church, not just our church, but the North American church, this past year has been so focused on Sunday mornings, hasn't it? What can we do on Sunday mornings? How are we limited on Sunday mornings? All these questions have been surrounded by what it means to gather as the church. And what James is reminding us here is that gathering as the church is such a small part of what it means to be a Christian, amen? Being a Christian is not just coming here and showing up on a Sunday morning. Being a Christian is the very aspect of how your life is transformed by the gospel, being a Christian is much more than just religious duty. It's about a heart that's transformed that actually changes the world around you in generosity and love to people around you. So, so much of what James is saying is we can so easily get caught in this deception that what matters is simply come, gather as the church, learn a few things, get a few insights, have a good time, and that's it. But James says that's deception. True religion is taking what you've learned, taking these insights that God is speaking to you and teaching you, and transferring them into a way that transforms who you are and your character and pushes forward in how you show generous love to people around you. That, that is something that is is a whole worldview of how we experience the, the life of a believer is to pursue those ends, to pursue these things. And so, uh, just as a, a closing comment in light of this too, usually Sunday mornings, it's a lot about learning and listening and knowing the Word, right? When we enter out of these building doors, the main focus should be the doing aspect, right? Right? 
Showing generosity, showing your character is growing, um, being fruitful in our lives to show the fruits of the Spirit, to show Christ-likeness. This is part of our mission as the church. It's much more than just the gathering, it's the scattering to be on mission that God has called us to. This is what we do. Now, to accomplish that, a great way to make sure you're being held accountable to that is, is part of the reasons why we have things like home groups, why we have small groups, why we, why we have various groups that meet for study, um, not just for study, but for ministry. This is why we have mentoring in our church. This is why we have discipleship, is because we need to be held accountable to all these things. We need to be held accountable more than just Sunday morning, but a process of mission that we're all called to. This is something that James emphasizes. Now, let me close with this as we're transitioning to a time of communion. When we think of all these things, they sound amazing. And even if, even if you're not a Christian, you would say, you know what, it's great for people to be less angry. It's great for people to listen more. It's great for people to um, live out convictions of love and generosity. It's great for people to have integrity and character. These are all great things. And our, our culture even today would say these are all great things. But how is this possible? Is any of this possible truly apart from God? It's not. Throughout history, we as humans, all we've done is make more of a more of a mess of things. We have an idea, uh, ideology of progress that is completely ransacked today. Uh, it's interesting, there were, there were studies done in the 1940s that asked the question, do you believe that your children will be better off than you were? And I, it was something like 67% said yes. The world is getting better, the world is progressing, technology advancements are making the world a better place. And then they did a very similar study around the 1980s, and guess what? That number completely declined. All that hope was gone. Said, you know, all the hope we had for progress, everything the Enlightenment taught us, everything failed, and now there's a deep sense of hopelessness. Even today we see it so prominently in our culture as mental illness is growing, as depression is growing. All, all these things are growing exponentially because there's been such a deep sense of loss of hope. And the reason is because we've lost the hope that God's power will actually transform the world. And God's power can actually transform people to be more generous, to live out the implications of what Christ has called us to. The only hope we have as the church to accomplish these things is Jesus. Amen? We, we sung this morning, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When we look at these things, the last thing I want us to do is to turn this into morality. In the sense that, you know what, I want to be a good person, so I'm going to accomplish these things on my own. Because that is a hopeless endeavor. We, we cannot accomplish these things on our own. We need the power of Christ in our lives. This is why James emphasizes we need the Word of God implanted in us. This is not something that you can produce. If, if you don't have a seed, can you grow a plant? No, 
If you don't have a seed, you can't grow a plant. If you don't have the word of God implanted, are you, how can you produce any of these things? It's impossible. That is why we need desperately Jesus in our life. That's why we desperately need Jesus to teach us, instruct us, transform us, reveal his love, reveal his grace, reveal his patience, reveal his mercy. That is why we so desperately need Jesus. And so what we're going to do during this communion time is remind ourselves of that. Remind ourselves because Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Because we were humans as humans could never accomplish anything of worth, of value, of purpose. We cannot change ourselves. We need God to come into our lives. And we remind that God has done that for us. He has blessed us in that. We just have the responsibility of receiving the word. And so what we're going to do is I'm just going to give a time and space right now, just this preparing for communion. I want you to have a conversation with God. Maybe there's some things on this list that you need to confess in your life and say, God, I need your power to come into my life to accomplish these things. Maybe you're someone who's, who's questioning spirituality and Christianity and you need to process this understanding of who Jesus is, what did he accomplish, what does it mean in my life. Maybe you're someone who, who simply just needs to sit in the presence of God and say, God, plant your word in me. I need you. I need your wisdom. I need your insight. I need your truth. And so we're just going to leave some time and space for you to do that, and then I'll lead us in communion after that.